From the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce, I'm Jeremy Henderson. And I'm Christy Gillenwater, and this is Chattanooga Works. Have you ever worked a second job? It can be exhausting. Now imagine if you had to work three different jobs just to make ends meet. Next, imagine that you have a young child you have to care for. How long do you think you'd be able to keep all those plates spinning without some help? This isn't a hypothetical. Amanda Ellis, Marketing and Communications Manager at the Chamber, reports this story for us. When I toured the Chambliss Center for Children, I met Michelle, who was raising her six-year-old granddaughter, Lily, and working an erratic schedule seven days a week. I am a realtor okay. with Keller Williams. I, I work at Longhorn Steakhouse on the weekends, and then I work part-time for Memorial Hospital. Like many working parents, especially those who are raising a child on their own or who don't work traditional office hours, Michelle has faced challenges around childcare that will allow her to work non-traditional hours and enough of them to make ends meet. I would say, not to be dramatic, but Chambliss Center kept us from being homeless. It allowed me to work enough so that we can make ends meet. Market rate costs for childcare can be $200 a week. It's a big expense you may not have thought much about if you don't have children, but it substantially impacts parents and families. It is, and I understand they're taking care of your most prized possession. You know, I understand why it's expensive, but if you can't afford it, you cannot afford it. You know, and I, you know, was spending 500 plus a month on childcare and only being able to work, you know, during the day, during normal childcare hours. Many professions don't fit into a neat eight or nine to five schedule, which creates an additional challenge. Not only is childcare expensive, but it probably isn't open most of the time you need it. People that do have these jobs that are not within the normal, right? Hospital workers, police officers, waffle house workers, you know, restaurant workers. It's so hard to find childcare. And to find a place that's 24 hours, seven days a week, holidays, it's just amazing. I'm still amazed by it. I still hear angels sing when I open the doors <laughs> to come in here, you know, with Lily. So it's just, I can't say enough good things about this place. I really can't. In addition to providing safe, dependable childcare when parents and caregivers need it most, Chambliss Center for Children also focuses on preparing kids to succeed academically. Michelle reports Lily is counting better and with more enthusiasm after several months at Chambliss Center, and that the program is also building her confidence. They saved me, and Lily too, because she really struggled at other places because of some disabilities she has, and they accepted her here, and they've never said a negative thing about her just always positive. They, they always build her up. I also spoke with Leslie Berryhill, Director of Special Projects and Events at Chambliss Center for Children. During our tour, she shared their extensive history of supporting families and taking care of kids, including some interesting nuances of the agency's 80-year-old main campus building. Um, so we started in 1872 as a food and clothing pantry for orphaned girls in downtown Chattanooga. Um, it was ladies from five downtown churches 
who started the program and then quickly realized that there was a bigger need. Some of these girls were sleeping in the upstairs of a saloon in downtown Chattanooga and um, they didn't think that was quite appropriate and so they started renting houses for the girls and then the yellow fever epidemic came through. We had a lot more orphans, um, of course including boys, so we started taking boys into the program and just grew from there. We kept having to rent bigger and bigger houses. Um, in 1910 we built the Vine Street Orphans Home which is on the current campus of UTC where the Baptist Student Union is. Um, we had a capacity of about 100 kids there, and then in, when the Depression hit, we got another influx of orphans, not so much from parents passing away, but leaving them, leaving children on our doorsteps with notes saying, we can't take care of little Johnny, we have to go find work, we'll come back and get him. So we had a lot more kids come into care. We needed more space. So we came out here um, to... Brainerd, um, which was rolling hills and farmland at the time, and we bought 17 acres from a family out here for probably like a dollar or something. It was, you know, almost a donation kind of thing. Um, we raised $100,000 locally, which was very amazing to me at the time of the Depression in order uh, to do that, and we got about 200000 from the government to build Chamblee Center for Children here. Um, it was actually called the Children's Home at the time, and it was built with WPA labor, so it is solid. It is a fortress. It was built as an orphanage, so as we go through, you'll see things like um, the original terrazzo floors, brick. We've got all of our light switches are up high so that little hands can't reach them. All of our handrails on the stairs are low to make it easy for little kids. Our stairs are even hard for adults to walk on because they're so small. Um, shallow, I guess, for little kids to make that easy. Um, our front offices all have their own bathrooms and everything because this is where the matrons lived that took care of the children. So we operated, um, and we can walk on down the hall, see some kids that are here. We operated as an orphanage until the 1950s, 60s when the foster care system came about and um, the orphanage system kind of went away in the United States. It's definitely uh, better for children to be in home settings as opposed to institutional settings. Um, so our numbers, of course, started going down for the, the agency and we decided to look around the community and see what the need was and how we could meet the community's childcare needs. And at the time, we commissioned a study and realized that um, Chattanooga was definitely a very industrial town. We had a lot of second and third shift uh, positions and we didn't have the people to fill them because those people needed childcare. So we started um, what was called care around the clock. That did not exist in the state. Nobody was doing 24-hour child care, so there was not a license or anything for that. We had a very um, wonderful board member who had connections in Nashville, and she used those connections to go up and get us a temporary license to operate as a 24-hour child care facility, and um, then that gave the state a few months to catch up with us on their regulations because child care is definitely very heavily regulated. So we have been operating our 24-hour child care program ever since. So we are open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, we do before and after school care for school-age kids, summer camp, spring break, fall break, Christmas break, snow days if 
county schools are closed, we are not. We are open. Parents can bring their children here. One of the most effective steps a community can take to improve its talent pipeline is to provide access to affordable quality child care. The Chambliss Center for Children has been doing just that since 1872. So we are joined today by Philip Accord, uh, President and CEO for the Chambliss Center for Children. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Chambliss, uh, what it is, and, and how long you've been around? Well, uh, I went to work there on November the 11th, 1971. Uh, that might have been before you were born. I'm not sure, but yeah, it was. I, I'm not sure about Christy, but anyway. Yes. <laughs> Just barely. A long time ago. So this is my 47th year. Um and it's just a really special program, and I think that's what attracted me is because I wanted to be somewhere uh, where I could help families and help them with their children and help them be stronger and be productive members of the community. And when I heard that this was a 24-hour early childhood education program working with parents working first, second, third shift or multiple shifts or multiple jobs, I thought, wow, what a, what a great idea. And so I went as the associate director and then took over as executive director in 1976. And I've been there ever since then, uh, working with the great staff and, and responding to the community's demand for our services. When I went there, we had 90 children. Now we're licensed for 380 children on the main campus. Uh, and of course, you know, we manage six offsite centers. And then we still have our group home, so we still have a residential component. And we are licensed for eight in that program. And just rec recently, we built uh, two new duplexes across the street, and we purchased two duplexes. So we are serving youth that are aging out of the system, too, uh, that have grown up in state custody, but now they've aged out at age 18, and they have no place to go. So we're helping them a transition into adulthood. Uh, as long as they stay in school and keep a job, then we provide them a place to live and case management services. So we have early education, we have group home, we have 21 foster homes, so we do adoptions, uh, we do transitional uh, living for those aging out, and we have a management uh, program whereby we uh, work with six off-site centers. And I think one of the most unique uh, programs that we now have is a program in our school system. We are present in 12 of our schools, mostly elementary, but we also have a middle school and a high school where we take care of the children of the teachers. And uh, this was started back when Dr. Register was the superintendent because he said he was losing 49% of all of his teachers within the first three years. And he said basically he was doing exit interviews and he found out that the main reason they were leaving is because once they started their family, if they couldn't find good quality childcare, then they were quitting their job. And so he said, I cannot provide this service but uh, can you? And we were working with them down at Howard because we operated Maurice Kirby Child Care Program, which is attached to Howard. And so I checked with my licensing people and insurance people, and, and they, we were able to work out the little details. And so we started with Normal Park and Saudi Elementary, and now we have 10 additional schools. And we've got about 140-some children we serve. Uh, and these are all children of teachers. Uh, they bring their babies to work with them every day, and we take care of them while they teach in the classroom, and then they pick them up and take them home. So we've got about 140-some children in that program, in addition to the 300-and-some in the main campus and another 300-and-some uh, in our six off-site. So on any given day, about 700 
uh, over 700 children between six weeks of age and about 18 or 19 years of age. Other than that, we won't, we, you know, we don't do much. We just kind of sit around, twiddle our fingers. So don't do much, heavens. I'll <laughs> listen to you. It's so critical. I mean, you know, I have an, um, a young child, and and you know, the early um, early childhood education is so important. And like we were talking, quality early childhood, and and for teachers, oh yeah, you know, to to believe in your program. I mean, that really says something. And um, you might walk us through a little bit about how do how do families find you? I mean, what are some of the pathways to that relationship with uh, Chambliss? Well, on our main campus, I think it's mainly word of mouth. Uh, as a matter of fact, we intentionally do not market that particular service because we maintain a waiting list of almost 200 and sometimes over 200. So it, it seemed counterproductive for us to, you know, throw some TV or, or ads out there in the paper or whatever saying, you know, we provide this service. But uh, most of the people that are there uh, – that have a, a grandchild like Lily or, you know, or working multiple jobs, you know, they, they have a network or ask around or they find out. And the fact that we've been in the community for 147 years, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty f- large structure. So uh, if you happen to be driving down Germantown and, or Gillespie Road in the Brainerd area, you can't miss it. So, I mean, we get calls constantly uh, and uh, we just try to, give priority, especially to the younger children. There's not a lot of infant care out there. Infants and tumblers and toddlers is just premium, and especially at an affordable rate. Uh, it's just almost impossible. Uh, so I don't know if you saw, uh, a few years ago, HBO came to town and did a documentary called Paycheck to Paycheck, The Life and Times of Katrina Gilbert. And this was a young single mom whose husband got into uh, drugs and uh, you know, and their family just fell apart, and she had three young uh, children, uh, two daughters and a son, and she worked as a, a CNA, and she worked long hours, and when she tried to find childcare, uh, she, she could, everybody wanted to charge her $300 a week for three children, and uh, she said, that's what I make. <laughs> I can't pay you everything I make. So when she came uh, and talked to us, someone said, you need to go and talk to them at the Chamblee Center for Children. And she made an appointment, came over, and we sat down with her. And, and when we told her what our rate was, I mean, we charged a, a, the full rate, which is $75 is our lowest right now a week, and then we charged half for each additional sibling. So, you know, she, she was able to uh, afford our service. And, um, and now her youngest uh, son, who was a baby then, is now, I think, in first or second grade, you know, and her girls are in upper six or fifth or six or something. I don't remember. But anyway, um, and uh, Marie Shriver was doing a, a focus on uh, uh, living on the edge or what poverty in America looks like and how, uh, how many women, especially who are moms, you know, have the full responsibility of the family. And so she came to Chattanooga uh, and with the HBO staff, and they filmed a documentary. And then she wrote a book called Living on the Edge. And, and actually, Katrina ended up on Oprah and a bunch of shows, you know, talking about what it's like to be a single mom with, with children or a grandmother with a granddaughter that you have responsibility for. So Chamlis Center for Children uh, is an agency that has adjusted or adapted its services to the needs of the community 
uh, over 147 years. So as we, I mean, we are always, we have a great governing board of directors and we keep our ear to the ground. We're a member of the chamber, you know? Yeah. So because we realize that we're, I, I think we're an integral part of the workforce. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we do, I mean, if you think about it, if we serve 700 and some children every day, that means there's five or 600 families out there that are employed somewhere. You know, if we shut down for a day, there'll be a lot of unhappy employers <laughs> because, you know, their, their, their staff, their uh, employees could not come to work because they would not have childcare. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's kind of, I think, what makes us unique. And the fact that we're what they call a shared service model even makes us more unique uh, in that we are, um, uh, for those six off-site centers, we are their back office support. We do all their payables and payroll, and we, we, our staff actually direct those programs, and we manage their budgets, and we you know, make their deposits and pay all their bills, and, and we do all their HR work for them. And then all the directors of the centers have to do is manage the staff and work with the parents. And that's a great model that uh, uh, a national organization called Opportunities Exchange uh, that's a consulting company uh, that focuses on uh, how to finance quality early education in our nation, you know, has identified us as one of the models um, uh, in the nation. And we've been to conferences and been featured in magazines. And as a matter of fact, in September, I'm going to New Orleans to speak at the National League of Cities, talking about how cities can support uh, their early education uh, programs to uh, give their employees, you know, better opportunities for schooling and jobs and, and, and those types of things and how critical it is uh, from the employee perspective, you know, and that's even before we get into the whole brain development and the importance of, you know, putting young children in a stimulating environment to where their brains are developing normally on track and they're, you know, learning all the skills they need to learn to be successful in school because there are next generation workforce. <laughs> so Absolutely. we want to make sure they're skilled. And Phil, you might talk, you mentioned the waiting list, you know, 200, and we all know how hard it is to find a childcare here. Talk us through, you know, why you can expand. I mean, obviously we can come up with, you know, a series of reasons, but, you know, the, these kind of joint opportunities, like you said, with some of the other facilities where you handle some of the back office. I mean, Walk us through, you know, either opportunities or challenges for you. Yeah, our board of directors did a strategic initiative. Uh, I guess it's been about five years ago now. And at that time, we were caring for about 600 children. And they, they set a goal that in, in, I guess, seven or eight years, I forget what the timeline was, that we would be serving 1,000, maybe 1,200 children. But that's very expensive. I mean, the first thing we had to do is go out and launch a capital campaign and raise $5.5 million because every uh, strategic initiative that we identified had a fairly large dollar amount. Because like I talked about building the duplexes for the transitional living. Well, we also built a child care center in Red Bank uh, because there was only one other regulated child care program in the entire municipality in Red Bank and so there was a big demand out there and so that's we opened that program now that was you know a lot of money and uh and we also opened a thrift store because you know here we are supporting ourselves through uh doing retail business out there we have two thrift stores that operate that the net proceeds from the sale of things that people donate to us 
go back into our early education program to subsidize. Because if you're serving low-income families that are making 8 $9 an hour, even $10 an hour, and they have two or three children, you know, they can't afford to pay the conventional fee out there for a quality early childhood education. So we're trying to provide quality early education, and, and they only pay, our parents only pay us about 20, between 21 and 25% of what our cost is. So that means we have to go out, my director of development, uh, vice president, all my staff work really hard. Uh, Katie Harvison has headed that effort. They have to raise over $600,000 a year to subsidize. And then we have an endowment fund, uh, having been around for 147 years, uh, uh, that has built up, and, and they put operating money. And then we have two thrift stores that put, this year, probably put three or $400,000 into our operating budget uh, to help offset. And we take that money, and that's why we can charge uh, on a sliding fee scale and, 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 and at the same time provide a quality service. But we still struggle. I mean, trying to stay competitive in this economy right now uh, is really tough, and especially trying to find qualified employees um, when, in fact, the, the fees the parents are paying are not anywhere close to paying for the cost of... Because, like, in a nursery, uh, you know, we have to have a teacher to every four children. You know, so if you pay a teacher uh, a living salary, you know, you pay them $12, $13 an hour plus the benefit package, you know, that far exceeds what four premiums or what four fees are going to be for that classroom. And then the one-year-olds are, you know, six to one. And it really doesn't no, – none of the classrooms pay for themselves <laughs> until you get up to four-year-olds and where you have 13 to one, and that, that's a little closer. And then our school age does better too. And we have before and after school. That's the other – that's the other uh, – uh, conundrum is that families don't come with just one age children. I mean, Lily's lucky. She's being cared for by her grandmother and she's a single child. But like uh, Katrina, she had three children. One of them was in school. The other one was a preschooler and the other one was an infant. You know, so she needed some place that would do before and after school as well as has infant care. And then somebody that has preschool care too. And those are basically three categories. And so having that continuum of care or the ability to serve a child from six weeks all the way up to 12 years of age certainly helps those families that, that have multiple children, and it helps them because it's affordable, and it helps them because it's accessible 24-7, 365. Anything else we can do? <laughs> yeah, well, I know, right? Well, and it's fascinating to think about that continuum because in terms of the facilities and, you know, the stimulation that you need for a six-year-old, a six-week-old is oh, yeah. very different from, Absolutely. you know, a third grader, et cetera. So. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and we know how important that is, uh, especially for those babies. I mean, brain development is a huge thing right now, uh, and our governor, Governor Haslam, has done a great job of promoting uh, the brain development training uh, through the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth and the Health Department and other departments, but also talking about ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences, and how those can interfere with a child's development and, and how, what we need to do to help that child overcome some of those, whether it's domestic violence or substance abuse or things like that, to help a child not only be intellectually ready to learn, but also be um, emotionally. And being in an early childhood program helps them also be socially ready. So they learn the social skills, 
given them emotional stability, and, and certainly laid that foundation for lifelong learning by exposing them to the various stimuli they need at the various developmental ages as they go along. And, you know, keeping your teachers all informed and trained and using the right curriculum and having lesson plans and all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it wears me out. Pretty soon when I get old, you know, <laughs> I'm going to get tired and, you know, and, and figure I can't do this anymore. So. Listen, to, well, it's a labor of love, clearly, because yeah, it, it is. is. I mean, the demands, the challenges uh, continue to evolve. And, and, you know, the challenges facing um, caregivers today are not the same as they were years ago. You know, we did a podcast on the opioid epidemic and, you know, you didn't have that years ago and, and then the, the children and how to deal with. So it's just fascinating to me and kudos to you and your team for you know, providing such an important service to our community, Phil. Well, thank you. We, uh, we take our responsibilities very seriously and uh, we, we try to be good stewards of our dollars and, and of our services. I mean, we have nice facilities and we have a good support of uh, good, like I said, we have uh, a 39 member board of directors. So I have 39 bosses, mm-hmm. just to put that in context. And, uh, and, and a good network of, of families throughout the community that believe in what we do and, uh, and support us. And employers too, we have a lot of employers in the community that come out and do uh, days of caring and, uh, and donate their services. Like, you know, we, when we put in our ELD lining because we knew we could save money and it's going to be better for our students uh, to have that type of lining, we had five electrical companies volunteer uh, their staff to come out and make the transition and deal with the whole ballast and whatever. All I'm not an electrician, so yeah. but I know they did a lot of good stuff, <laughs> and it took them a long time. So, you know, it's nice when employers... Uh, uh, you know, partner with nonprofits or, or programs that are serving the community uh, and, you know, provide their services to help us offset a lot of the cost, you know, as we try to be more efficient. Uh, and uh, we, we, we're very blessed in that area. So we really are. We're like, and it's, it's such a generous community. I know you haven't been here long, but I think you probably picked up oh, on that. Oh, I'm really definitely early. picking up on that. Yeah. Phil. It's yeah amazing we're very philanthropic mm-hmm. and, uh, it's it's uh, really really pretty amazing uh, th- the support that we get throughout the community for all aspects of our program, and and all we and, and what we say to people when they ask about our program, I, I say to them, uh, come out and take a tour. That's all we want you to do. You know, don't we're not asking for money. We're not asking you to sign on the dotted line. Just come out and see what we do, and then if it's something you think that you believe in and you think is important, then you know if you want to invest in it and, you know, we're, we'll work with you however we can. Well, I, I think you've illustrated pretty well, too, why there's such a need and why it makes sense to invest in it. Um, oh, yes. You know, it, as far as talent development is concerned, you're, you're hitting it on both ends, right? You're yes. allowing adults to stay in the workforce who otherwise right. might not, yeah. and you're providing early education to, right. to children. So you're out there providing this incredibly needed service. How is Chattanooga doing overall? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, th- I think we're doing better because, uh, you know, we've got Chattanooga 2.0 or Early Matters uh, in place now. The chamber yeah. is very much mm-hmm. involved in that, and so is United Way, and so mm-hmm. is the city of Chattanooga. And they're looking at not just early education, but they're looking at the whole continuum of services uh, to post-secondary, actually, into the job market. And, you know, and that's been going on now for what, three years or, or something like that. But I think we step back 
and took a really serious look at ourselves because we, as we looked at our graduation rates and we looked at our dropout rate, we looked at our failure rate, you know, we looked at all the different dynamics of our educational continuum from birth right on up into the, the, the workforce and realized that we were falling short <laughs> in a lot of areas and a lot of our statistics. And statewide, Tennessee now ranks 39th in the nation. Uh, the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth uh, does a kids count. Every state has an agency that does kids count, which gathers data, and they look at various components like you know poverty levels and graduation levels, uh, uh, suicide you know among teenagers, uh, employment uh, you know all those type of statistical uh, bits and pieces of information that sort of measure how well you're doing or how well the children are doing. And uh, we've improved. We used to be 40-something in the nation in, in the educational uh, uh, health of, of, of our state. So uh, Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga still struggles, you know, but, uh, you know, we've got a new superintendent and we've got some plans. on. I'm not involved in that, but I read the papers and, you know, I'm encouraged by what I see. And I am involved in Chattanooga 2.0 and Early Matters, and I'm very encouraged by what is going on there. Uh, I think that uh, we also are very fortunate in that our mayor, uh, Mayor Burke, has created an office of early learning. And, and, and I was at a meeting in Baltimore back in January, and there was a representative there from the National League of Cities. And, and she literally, she knew I was from Chattanooga, but she literally uh, 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 used Chattanooga as an example of what you can do locally because a lot of initiatives in the early childhood is federal to state. And she says, well, there's a community in Tennessee, Chattanooga, that the mayor has actually created an office of early learning and has hired a director. Aaron Ford is our director here in Chattanooga of our office, and that's most unique. I mean, Nashville doesn't have an office of early learning. I think they want one now that they've seen what we've done. But it, what it does, it, it, it makes your community focus on on what's happening, uh, you know, in relation to young children and, and families. And, and she also is over Head Start, which is a major partner. You know, if you look at sort of the continuum of early education, you have uh, early childhood education, which is what I am. I'm a 501c3 nonprofit uh, freestanding uh, agency serving young children. Head Start is a federally funded program. And then you have pre-K which is a state-funded program that the school system administers that just works with four-year-olds. And then you have the, the K through 12, and, and of course, then your post-secondary. So, you know, we, it's, it's hard to figure out where to put your dollars to make the, the most difference. But there's been some pretty noted economists. I know James Hackman, who is a, a national noted economist, has said the best investment any community can make is put their, invest their money in early childhood education. He says that for every dollar you invest in early childhood to give a child access to quality early childhood education, the community reaps a benefit of $17 over the life of that, that, that individual. And he gives examples. He says, you know, if, if, if a child receives good early childhood education, they have the brain development, uh, they, they have the base for lifelong learning, they enter school, they, they, they're successful. So they complete school, and then they go into post-secondary. That means they're going to get, they're going to buy a new car, not a used car. They're going to buy a house, not rent. You know, they're going to, their, their reinvestment back in the community through tax dollars, property tax, sales tax, so on and so forth. Over the life of that person, the community is going to get a 17 to 1 return. 
And so he says the best investment for communities to make is to invest in early childhood education, invest in, in helping young families make sure that their children are getting the service they need to be successful in school. And like you said, Jeremy, not only do we do that, but we also help that family, especially single-parent families who are part of the job market out there, we help them work, you know, uh, whether it's at a hospital or, or whether it's a waitress or whether it's real estate or whatever they're doing. How, how can you do that without, without help? And, those, and they make up a pretty significant percentage of our population. We, you know, our, we have almost more jobs than we have employees to fill those jobs, so we need to take care of our employees and support them any way we can. That's going to help our employers and businesses be successful. So that seems like a no-brainer to me. You're right. I mean, not only is it about you know helping our our youth and and families uh, be thriving here in the community, but that point you just made fell about talent. You know that that our employers do need people to work, and so you know obviously any parent is going to be concerned about the the care their child receives while they're away at work, and so um, so very important. And appreciate you bringing in you know Chattanooga 2.0, which is such an important cradle through career, oh, you know absolutely. collective impact approach that we have going on in this community. And really, it's so rare to see one that has strengths across the continuum, like you mentioned, early childhood and and that early childhood cohort work so closely together. I mean, over 30 organizations working together, hundreds of volunteers throughout, but, but just in early matters alone, in early childhood, uh, that collaboration is um, over 30 organizations. And that is where, you know, as you mentioned, all these different groups, it's so important to have, you know, collaboration and good communicate and play off of one another's strengths. And that's the kind of beauty of what has been built here by hundreds of people in Chattanooga 2.0 to the point that, we be, we're becoming a national model. Oh, we so, are. We you know, are. not yeah. only is your center, which is fantastic. I love when we have assets specifically that are, right. you know, yeah. showcased. But to. then also, wow, this whole relationship within the community of how everyone works together and cross collaborates—it's so rare and yeah, it beautiful. Is. Because it really does maximize the dollars and the skill set of the talent we have working on these very big challenges. Yeah, we just had. I had uh, Margie Wallen, who is uh, vice president of. of uh, uh, ounce of prevention which is a national organization they work very close with the gates foundation you know and she's been working with nashville but she's been wanting to come to chattanooga because she's heard about chattanooga 2.0 and of course she and i have been friends for a long time but uh, so she was down a couple of weeks ago and spoke to their group and you know she's just blown away with what's happening here in chattanooga so you're right we are becoming sort of a, a national model that people are talking about uh, because of the effort being put forth by the community to look at early childhood, figure out how to fund it, figure out how to improve the quality, how to help the employees that are working in that, that uh, arena because they're fairly underpaid. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's really unique. Uh, and I don't, there's not, as far as I'm concerned, from my knowledge, and I try to sort of stay in the know, there's not another community in our state that has put forth the effort to look at that continuum uh, of educational support and services for a child from birth up through post-secondary. Uh, Chattanooga, I think, is definitely leading the way. And you are leading the way as well. Uh, <laughs> Chambliss is clearly providing a much-needed service. Um, and even though you're caring for hundreds of kids, obviously, 
Um, you have there are hundreds more in the community um, that have need of the service. So, um, if anyone wants to volunteer, um, donate time or money, we're going to have some contacts in the show notes. Great, yeah. Um, thank you for being here, Phil. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thanks for the invitation. So, and, and I always remind everybody uh, that you know not only are we a nonprofit, but we also are an employer. That's why we're part of the chamber. Right? So we have over 400 employees and our total budget with all of our agencies is over seven million dollars a year so i said you know we're putting money back in the yes, community sure. uh by the business aspect of who we are and what we do so you know we like to think we're sort of a all-around entity we just just play all yes, the play are. all the play all the sides so but thanks for having me this was uh, nice to be able to talk about the program and and uh, we're very proud of our partnership with the chamber and working with other entities uh, in the community. I think it makes us stronger. And Chattanooga just has a reputation of being such a collaboration-type community mm-hmm. where people work together across all kinds of boundaries and, and uh, not a lot of silos in our community. We That's try right. to We try to tear those down. Thank all you, right. Phil. Yeah, thank you. That'll do it for us. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks when some nurses will school us on nursing school. Until then, work at Chattanooga. Chattanooga Works is a production of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce. It's hosted by me, Jeremy Henderson, and Christy Gillenwater. Production and music by Eric Lissica. Our executive producer is Sybil Topol with editorial assistance from Amanda Ellis. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks.